1: Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times. If it's time, rise, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you scars our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise, Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on An the issue of 21st Century Slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthis with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nalaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st Century Slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is 11-11-2015, Veterans Day. And in case you didn't know it, Veterans make up three-quarters of a million people in our for-profit prisons today. Nothing says thank you for your service like being baked to death inside a sweltering jail cell on Rikers Island, as was the case with homeless veteran Jerome Murdoch, whose only crime was trying to stay warm outdoors on a cold night. The truth is, millions of Americans are not enjoying the freedoms our soldiers gave their lives to gain. No one is safe from slavery, not even our honored veterans. How bad is the problem of mass incarceration for military veterans? Let me read you a quote. A conference sponsored by the Justice for Vets Divisions of the National Association of Drug Court Professionals focuses on veterans involved in the criminal justice system as a result of substance abuse and mental health programs. Uh, There are some grim statistics behind this issue issue, one in six returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan suffer from a substance abuse disorder. Since 2004, the number of veterans treated for mental illnesses and substance abuse has increased 38 percent, and 81 percent of arrested veterans had a substance abuse problem. VA Secretary Eric Shineski, in his keynote speech at the conference Monday, said that homelessness also stands out as another key factor for incarceration. He says nearly 58,000 veterans are estimated to be homeless on any given night. I'm told that incarceration is the number one predictor of homelessness. From our story tonight, tonight, VA and defense chiefs confront reality of 700,000 incarcerated veterans. In a recent article by Scotty Reed, we discovered that U.S. taxpayers are spending an estimated $15,653,500,000 per year to incarcerate veterans over nonviolent drug offenses. Further, the GEO Group and CCA, two of America's private prison enslavers, had their quarterly earnings report. And as usual, Johanna will give us the breakdown from the transcripts. If you want prophecies of prisons, these are the men and women who will tell you where things are going, straight from the enslaver's mouth. In our America is Ferguson series, we examine the state of New Hampshire today. This week's writer of the 21st century, Underground Railroad is Alfred Dwayne Brown, who spent 10 long years in a Texas prison for a murder he did not commit. And our abolitionist in profile tonight is the first African-American diplomat, Ebenezer D. Bassett, 1833 to 1908. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find archive podcasts at newabolitionistradio.blogspot.com, and we invite you to join our conversation by calling us at one 1- 641-715-3660. One, one, Extension is 549-032-pound. Oh, Just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty, Brother Johannin? Good to see you here from you guys again. Peace, Max. Peace. Peace, Peace. Johanan.
2: Good to be here, gentlemen.
1: Hey, how did that uh, event that you attended go there, Johanan? I've been curious as hell about that one.
2: Oh, it's it's next week. It's
1: the 16th. Oh, I thought it was this last week. Okay, okay. <clears throat> yeah,
2: it's coming up. It's coming up. We'll be on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna <laughs> to it. I'm Gonna pull a Max Parthas on there behind. I'm not scheduled to <laughs> speak, but y'all gonna hear me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> little, little bandit, little bandit abolitionism. It's all good. <laughs>
1: That's how you got to do it, man. You know. Yeah. It's the only thing that they they want. I mean, if you told them what you want to talk about, they wouldn't invite you. <laughs> right. You, <laughs> I haven't you know, been
2: to very many since I told them. To <laughs> they haven't called me back to, to very many since I told them the last time. You, been a, you know, a that's a how
0: I kind of felt today. <clears throat> Excuse me.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: for those that don't know, I am a U.S. veteran, spent six years in the United States Army as a communication specialist. Was, uh was um, the field that I was in uh, spent six months in an active war zone um I wasn't in Iraq but I was providing support for the troops um um while I was based in Saudi Arabia during the um uh, the first Gulf War so I said that to say this this is not going to be a politically correct show uh of on this veterans day because I don't feel like that I'm any more privileged or any more special, or or my fellow veterans. That you know, I just don't buy into that political correctness. And in and in, in like how Max had Max and the young brother, I keep forgetting his name. Max, what's the young man from Black Lives Matter? Uh, Yeah, when y'all invaded that um um, well, he was actually supposed to be on the panel, but you know, yep. we we're not gonna rehash that. But y'all were in the audience and, and you know, uh, y'all made sure that y'all were heard uh, talking about uh, Johannin. He wasn't invited there to be a speaker, but he going to speak. Well, I kind of felt like that today as I crashed people's parties, um, uh, thanking the vets and, and all this and that, because I know it ain't nothing but a bunch of lip service just because I am a vet. All right. and it's, And I have a lot of veterans in my family. And the challenges that we have uh, faced in trying to get health care, living out in a rural area and not having to travel darn near 60 miles to, you know, see a VA doctor. Excuse me. But also, I know a whole lot of people do not join the military for God and country and all of that. They join the military for the same reason I joined, the same reason my cousin joined. Of course, my father and my uncle and one of my second cousins were drafted. So it ain't like, you know, they volunteered to go in. They were drafted. But my generation... You know, I went in in 1987 because I wanted some money to uh, attend school while I could also attend school while I was in the military. And I think that was a good decision because now, you know, my sister as well as millions of other Americans are saddled with all that debt, that college debt. So a lot of people don't go into the military. I'm sure there are some. Who grow up and, and, you know, they, they watch some movies on TV or whatnot. And, and, you know, they are gung ho. They are red, white, and blue down. You know what I'm saying? They are going in for patriotic reasons, but that's not the majority. The majority of the people in there, uh, we call it a poverty draft. It's, po- it's poor and impoverished and middle class. Uh, kids who go in there, that's the enlisted. Now, on the officer side, you know, that's different. You know, these are people who uh, got college educations and whatnot. So they're doing a little bit better. Well, maybe they went in to uh, uh, get some of their college debt paid paid off. So I shouldn't say that, you know, that they were more well off than others. I I don't know that. Uh, But this is not a politically correct show. We it's not gonna be oh thank you to troops for their service and I just felt like a lot of phony people was on Twitter today when I woke up this morning and I was like oh it's Veterans Day. Let me connect Veterans Day to abolitionism. Cause I know for I know been known for a while that you got all these vets in prison, um um a lot of them for nonviolent drug offenses um and so I was like, well, this is a perfect opportunity for me to uh connect abolitionism, spread abolitionism by piggybacking off of today is is Veterans Day as set aside by the federal government. So that was trending all day. It's probably still trending on Twitter. It wasn't trending on Facebook, but it was trending on Twitter. And so I just clicked on the little link that allow you to see all the people that's posting using that hashtag Veterans Day. And I'm seeing all these showcase people with the little blue check mark by their names. That means that they are influencers. They are are celebrities. They are politicians. They are showcased, you know, and I'm seeing all of them. Thanking the troops It's pretty much, you know, just a generic. Thank you. Thank you to those who serve. We salute the troops today and blah, blah, blah and blah, blah, blah. You know, the standard, the standard, <laughs> you know, a uh, uh, typical talking point on Veterans Day and whatnot. And so I started hitting them off. The first thing I did was I, I, I took that photo of the veteran in his prison cell. And uh, I grabbed that off of the website that you will be reading the article from, you know, about the 700,000. But it's actually more than that. It's actually up to a million. I think that article is two years old. But I grabbed.
1: So it was a million on another article.
0: Yeah, it's a million. It's up to a million now. See, the rate just two years ago, it was 700,000. Now they didn't got another 300,000 in two years. Okay, so. So um, I grabbed the image from that and um, I just added, you know, some commentary at the bottom of it. Hey, you want to thank a vet? You might have to go to the prison or the jail and thank a vet. You really want to thank a vet? Then think a vet by ending the drug war. Think a vet by ending prison slavery. You know, and so I just started tweeting at every person. First, I went after the politician. I went to Hillary Clinton, I tagged Hillary Clinton, I tagged uh, Bernie Sanders, I tagged uh, 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 Marco Rubio, I tagged Ben Carson, I tagged Donald Trump, and I asked them, you know, I asked them like I was asking a, po- a question that they might get during the debate. There are seven, uh, at least 700,000 veterans in our pr- prison, vast majority in there for nonviolent drug crimes. What are you plan to do to help these veterans? You know. And and just to see if I and then of course I the picture was there showing, you know, the veteran in, in prison in his cell block and, and whatnot. And I didn't get any response from any of the political camps except for one. Um um Uh, And it wasn't directly from their camp, but it was from their campaign team. And that was Rand Paul's campaign team. And they said that Rand Paul supports the end of the drug war. But that was pretty much about it. But everybody, man, I tell you, I probably spent a total of today about six, or at least six hours, man, at least six hours, maybe more than six hours. Just doing that off and on, just hitting up that Twitter tag of Veterans Day and tweeting at these these uh, uh, singers and these bands and these politicians. And and, you know, uh, and and I didn't get any response. And, you know, me and my mother, me and my mother was talking about it today. Now, I did get some people who follow us who retweeted you know I'm sure some fellow abolitionists out there because uh, I asked them to you know in our group move to abolish 21st century slavery so I got some retweets and and some stuff like that on I would like to have a whole lot more than what I got um and I would like to have seen a whole lot more people actually doing the same thing that I was doing uh uh, um But I still think it was successful in the fact that a lot of these people that I was hitting up are showcase people with some kind of influence and whatnot. And like me and my mom was discussing, she was like, don't get mad. You know, you shouldn't get mad at their apathy or whatnot because they may not know. And then like on, a, on, on, uh, on my Facebook page, this veteran, this old white man, looked like he was in the Navy or something. And he was saying that he he saw the little piece I had put in and he wrote, I'm mad because I didn't know this. So a lot of people don't know, man. A lot of people don't know. And, and, and these politicians ain't trying to tell them. All these politicians trying to do is is just, you know, the standard talking points about the VA hospital being in shambles and this and that. But I, I mean, that's been going on for years. But what's more important is the seven hundred thousand to one million vets who are in prison out there in there because they killed somebody. They harmed another individual. OK, then uh, we they, we can argue they, they should be there. OK, uh, but I would argue probably not because they're not being rehabilitated. They probably going to come out worse than when they went in but the ones that are in there because of nonviolent drug crimes because they was using weed to treat their PTSD and what they should not be there man and 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 so you know i am not on here this is not a thank the troops day on this on this program we trying to free the troops that's what we trying to do we trying to free the enslaved and it's just a shame that um a lot of people don't know how many veterans are actually in prison so I know I said a lot
1: there I'll let y'all guys uh, go ahead we're certainly going to cover a lot of the bases today so they can understand what's happening to veterans what uh, they're being honored with there was a couple of things I want to mention in the intro though before we got into the first stories I I think the Bernie Sanders camp is about done with me (laughs) they contacted me just recently and asked me uh, to invite me to be a part of their listening party for the upcoming debates here in Charleston. And uh, while I was on the phone with her, the woman, I you know, started talking about the Justice is Not for Sale Act and how I'm noticing no mention of this at all. And it's uh, really kind of irking the hell out of me that they would not support the bill that they put their names on, which was supposed to be the place card for everything that we are fighting for over here. So uh, I guess after telling her about that, she said she would text me the number, uh, the address, so I could come in and a ticket and all of that. I never got the text. So so I guess I changed her mind. But, you know, I'm not just going to settle for anything. If you can't just throw a bone at me and then not support it, like that's supposed to shut us up. Like we did it. Now just go on. Leave us alone. We're busy. We gave you what you wanted. Now shut up and go on about your business while we talk about this. No, that's not how it works. We're going to make this happen one way or another. And also, uh, big shout out to my youngest daughter who just had her third daughter, uh, grandchild number 10 for me last night. Congratulations. We were there in the delivery room with her. Yep. Beautiful. Little Max Kennedy Jones. Yeah, And yes, she is named after me. <laughs> we're mm-hmm. going to be a third generation activist, uh, I'm sure. Indeed, man. So, yeah, that, that's two things I want to talk about. And um, also, I'll be on the 19th in Columbia, South Carolina, at La Jazz Cafe, again, giving an abolitionist workshop with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement from Charleston and Columbia, as well as uh, Brother Omari, painter, Fox, who will be down there. And I'm hoping that all of the artist community comes out and gets this knowledge on the 19th at 6 p.m. at Le Jazz Cafe in Columbia, South Carolina. Come from wherever you are. I don't care. You can fly out from Texas or whatever. Just come and get this knowledge.
2: Indeed. Yeah, Scotty, you did. You said a mouthful, but you're speaking from the uh, experience, so you definitely uh, <clears throat> earned your stripes literally and figuratively. Paid the dues you know? to be able to. Pay the dues to be able to, uh, you know, within this platform, w- without a doubt, speak on these things in depth and from the heart. So it's just like you said, though. Ultimately, for me, the greatest challenge with all of this is, is what you said. you you know, uh, your your mother reminded you of, and you and you got a, a confirmation of that from uh, a, a veteran saying they just don't know. A lot of people just don't know. So that's that's got to be our continued push, you know, with this program. Uh, online and offline in the real world. I mean, everything we do everywhere we go is continue to, I mean, almost like uh, basically like scripturally, like you taught, you know, let your light shine before men, you know, let your light shine before the world so people know, you know, where you're coming from and what's going on. And if there's a better way uh, and a better tomorrow for us, we don't have to live in this situation because uh, if they don't know, they're going to just continue to allow any and everything to go on and not be able to make sense out of why their children are disappearing, not be able to make sense out of why when, uh, when uh, uh, police turns into the same lane driving behind them as they drive it down the street with no warrants and no the tags is good and license is good and everything else. So, you know, degree in hand and good job. And, nice home and everybody's good. Everything's good. I mean, you're perfectly compliant and do everything you should, but for some reason you're gripping the hell out that steering wheel and your knuckles and got white. And you really wondering like, am I next? You know, this is all <laughs> directly related to slavery. If you wasn't worried about slave catchers, you wouldn't be acting like this. You wouldn't be afraid like this. You wouldn't feel that anxiety. So if you're worried about the slave catchers, then it's t- high time you admit that you either are a slave or you on your way to it. It's hanging over your head. So we just got to remember everybody don't know. But if they get a hold of us, they're going to find out.
1: Now,
0: them politicians, though, they know. They know. And I oh, yeah, ain't they cutting problem. them no slack.
1: Whatsoever. This is a conversation that they don't want to have, particularly in the Republican Party. They just don't want to have it. It leads down too many dark roads that they can't explain.
2: Hmm. Well, it's all, uh, you know, so thoroughly connected that it, um, I mean, something, and I know we got to get into our stories, but something that I just read that, um, it just reminded me, you know, of, of the information that we continue to work to ferret out and find and dig or whatever It's coming out. You know, uh, it was a mainstream article. That I actually just posted it on my personal page and I put it in the Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery Group and then also on the New Abolitionist Radio page as I'm mentioning it. But just a quick little piece of what it was saying, talking about the connections. And they're talking about after Ferguson and how the world saw that Ferguson, you know, was so racist. And uh, you know, from what was going on, not just the Michael Brown situation, which is why they keep trying to reduce it to just Michael Brown, which is bad enough. They try to completely ignore Kajami Powell. They try to completely ignore that Ferguson wasn't even the the worst city in the surrounding 10-15 mile radius around Ferguson of all the cities were doing all the stuff they doing, just ripping people off. You know, all of this. Anyway, <clears throat> their commentary says there's two particularly interesting connections. Uh, that we're focused on right now. One is the rental car company called Enterprise Rental Car, which is headquartered in St. Louis. The Taylor family, who owns the company, is one of the city's most well-known philanthropic families. They donate millions of dollars to cultural and civic institutions. What a lot of people don't know, though, is that one of the enterprise subsidiaries is the Keefe Group, a company we've talked about on this program many times, who provides commissary services to over 800 public in private prisons across the country, this is the same company that Cecil McCrory and uh, what was the uh, the black dude's name? The uh, Epps, Christopher Epps, was selling no bid contracts to for the Mississippi prison system, just giving them contracts. The Keith Group, so the Enterprise Rental Car Company owns the Keith Group, one of their subsidiaries, and they're generating billions of dollars, no doubt, off of over eight hundred prisons and public jails across the country. Every time someone in a St. Louis city jail makes a call to a loved one or purchases toothpaste at the commissary, that benefits the enterprise rental car company and the Taylor family. We're also focusing on groups like Ameren, the utility provider in St. Louis, which has a monopoly on the city's utilities by burning, they talk about they're burning this particular coal company's uh, coal to create electricity or whatever, which is exploiting the low-income communities. It says simultaneously the executives sit on the board of the St. Louis police foundation and funnel private dollars into the police department. See, it's starting to come out. It's not just us talking about it. It's starting to come out. It won't go away. These people won't stop what they're doing. And like you said, Scotty, the politicians know because people like the Taylor family enterprise rental group, the people that own the. you think the people that own the utility companies in St. Louis, you think they contribute to any of these politics at all? You think they put money in these people's hands? Of course they do. They know where that money comes from. It's... Man, people got to wake
1: up. Man. Yeah. uh, Scotty stays on their behinds like that, especially on Twitter. I don't even use Twitter, so kudos to you for working on that crazy area. (laughs) Facebook is crazy enough for me. But yeah, Scotty stays on these officials and gets the uh, attention on them where it deserves to be. And on these uh, stars who should be speaking out about it. I know there's several in our camp, as you said before, the abolitionists are speaking out a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of want to transition it into the first story so we can squeeze it in before the break. But uh, what happens is we have our military vests go over these overseas wars where they're dealing with cognitive dissonance of their own because they know they're not in a just war. They're in wars of conquest, wealth, and Profit, and that weighs heavily on their soul but they're doing what they have to do they're not there to ask questions they're just there to be the arm of the United States of America and then when they come back they're often dealing with mental illnesses from the things they've seen and experienced and the pressures of cognitive dissonance of trying to avoid dealing with reality of what your purpose in a place is you know and they end up with uh, things being uh, exasperated uh, like the illnesses that they may bring whether they be schizophrenia or uh, bipolar disorders or depressions. And this happened to Jerome Murdo, who came back after being, uh, serving his time in the military. And one winter night in New York, as a homeless veteran, uh, one of the many thousands and thousands of homeless veterans on any given night, went into a stairwell to get warm. A policeman, probably a former veteran himself, I can say, But a policeman came into the stairwell, asked him if he had been invited to be in there. He says, no, I wasn't invited in. So the policeman took him and arrested him and put him in Rikers Island, where he stayed for eight straight days, pretty much unattended. And where he boiled or baked to death at in his cell, where the temperatures went well over 100, 110, 115 degrees temperature. And nobody noticed that this veteran was lying in this cell baking to death. Not only was he homeless, dealing with mental illnesses that the United States would not address or help him with, but the burden on his family, but in addition to that now, your answer to everything is when everything's a nail, all you got is hammers, right? A cop arrests him, throws him in a cell and bakes him slowly to death. That is just it's just amazing, man. I, I don't even know what to say. You, you hit upon
0: something, and it, it's not surprising that we were thinking along the same lines. But you mentioned something key, and, and it's not—I re- mean, it's—it's it's relevant to the story, but it, it's just
1: something else you I might was thinking. better veteran, the cop, right? But
0: yeah. I was thinking that because see we know through report digging up this information and paying attention to the reports that come out. We know about the federal, you know, program coming out of the uh executive branch to put more cops on the street. We know the Clintons roles in putting more cops on the street and they gave they give a bet a preference to hiring veterans. Now I've talked about the fact that you know, perhaps some of these cops got PTSD and they have flashbacks and or whatnot, and they're taking it out on the civilian population here at home. You know, they come here and in many of them, they go into non-white communities and they occupy those non-white communities. They treat it just like they were in there in Iraq Kicking down doors or in Afghanistan detaining people. So they come, they bring these problems back and then you put them, you stick them, you know, you stick a badge on them and give them a gun. And then we wonder why so many, I wonder, you know, I, I don't know uh, what the percentage I meant to look that up today, but that kind of escaped my mind, but I don't know what the percentage of law enforcement officers are veterans and in more importantly, recent uh, uh, veterans returning from the Iraq-Afghanistan war. But I was thinking, Max,
1: damn, they are slick it. They got veterans locking up veterans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the tale of the prince and the pauper, basically. Just circumstances makes you one or the other. The homeless, mentally ill veteran sleeping in a hallway on a New York winter night who gets arrested, or the cop. Who goes out and has this wonderful job and a family that he can support and arrest the veteran to put him in a cell to be baking?
2: Well, we've covered the story, I mean and talked about several veterans around the country that were not only allowed or, or put you know kidnapped and, and enslaved, um, murdered in custody or, or allowed to die you know in the, in the care of the state, or the municipality, but we've also covered uh, dozens and dozens of, of veterans that were unarmed and extrajudicial, extrajudicially murdered in the street by the slave catcher. So, you know, not everybody even makes it to custody, just straight up getting murdered, you know, whether it's beaten to death, attacked by the canine, shot in the back, in the face, you know, whatever. I mean, it's... It's sickening. If you, can't, if you can't respect the citizens and if you can so easily lay the blame at the foot of the victims and say somehow they deserved it, it well, your taillight was out. So, I mean, there's no way the cop knew if you were going to try to kill him or not. So it's probably your fault. I mean, next time, fix your taillight. I mean, and I've seen people justify deaths with those exact words. So then you turn it to, like you say, like we're covering tonight on the program, we'll turn it over to the fact that these people are veterans. And today you got on a flag shirt and a flag bandana tied around your head and you're going down to the to the mission to serve breakfast. And you feel real good about yourself because they got free lunch at the IHOP, or, you know, all this kind of crap, all these symbols and whatever. But what about people's lives? Do you just take in lives and, and blame them for getting killed? So,
1: and, yeah. and there's this cycle of shifting the people like through a process. Uh, you try to escape poverty. And so you join the military who uses you in a system of oppression on an international level. And sometimes mm-hmm. on the national level, when we see through Ferguson and the national guard, but primarily on an international level. Right. And then when you come back, if you want to continue being employed in a decent job, you, you're pushed into the police department. They even, you know, got extra uh, guard. incentives to bring you into the police department where you're again, used as a, uh, vehicle for oppression on the people of the the citizens that you're there to serve and protect. Yeah, remember our former guest, prison guards too. Right, right. So it's just like they're just cycling you through a, your, your share of oppression. So you have to participate. That way mm. you can't protest. Mm, mm,
2: mm.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> mm.
1: Well, man. Well, that brings us to our break time. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio today on Veterans Day here with Scotty Reed, Johanna Alaya, and Max Parthis. We're going to take a quick station identification break, and we'll be right back after these messages. <laughs>
0: tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com
1: Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We're going to move right into our next story, which is the uh, VA and Defense Chiefs confront the reality of 700,000 plus incarcerated veterans. And as Scotty pointed out it's up towards a million now because this is an article from 2013. Uh, We're heading into 2016, so it's nearing a million now. Uh, The 700,000 veterans consigned to the dustbins of society, prisons, and jails. Is is that what they call them, the dustbins of society? No, those are the plantations dustbins. Like, you know, nothing's happened to them. There's a little dustbins and they get swept up and lost and it's sad. No, it's much worse than that. We're talking about enslaving veterans. Putting them into yeah, they places don't get, where horrible things are happening. They're not getting swept up. They're getting snatched up. Yeah, this is no right. dustbin. Did you know that America leads the way in the world for man, male-on-male rape because of the atmospheres in our prisons? That is not dustbin variety. Damn writers. Anyway, uh, won some top-level attention this week at the first National Vet Court Conference in Washington, which brings together 1,000 judges, mental health and substance abuse professionals, and the leadership of the Veterans Affairs and Defense Departments. The conference, sponsored by the Justice for Vets Divisions of the National National Association of Drug Courts Professionals, focuses on veterans involved in the criminal justice system as a result of substance abuse and mental health problems. So these are people that specifically focus on the drugs Mm -hmm. and mental health that pushes veterans into prison. So these are the experts. There are some grim statistics behind this issue. One in six returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan suffers from a substance abuse disorder. Since 2004, the number of veterans treated for mental illness and substance abuse has increased 38%, and 81% of arrested veterans had a substance abuse problem. Wow. 81% of them arrested had substance abuse problems. The first veterans. See, now that
0: you say that, I don't mean to interrupt you. And we'll get to my article in just a bit. But but I was going to say as a disclaimer that I was being conservative with my numbers. But I'm hearing those numbers and I'm
1: like, dang, I really lowballed it. Pretty much. Yeah. Eighty one percent of them uh, suffer from substance abuse problems. And this was when they were arrested. The first veterans treatment court in the country was established in 08 by Judge Robert Russell in Buffalo, New York. The goal was to divert veterans charged with felony or misdemeanor nonviolent criminal offenses to a specialized criminal court that emphasized treatment and rehabilitation, guided by veteran health care professionals, veteran peer mentors, and mental health professionals. supposed to believe that.
0: But <laughs> see that right there, Max. That's why I said what I said at the beginning of the program. That although I have veteran status and 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 whatnot, and I know how they 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 give pay lip service to veterans, but I don't think that that would be just under the law. That's this that's this you're treating those veterans different than what you would somebody in the general population. I thought justice supposed to be blind. Just cause a person got veteran status don't mean that they should be given any more chance not to go to prison. Uh, uh, Than another person. I think everybody should be treated the same. If everybody got drug addiction problems. Then they need help for their drug addiction problems and and, and whatnot. Uh, but I don't even think they should be in court to begin with over drug uh, uh, addiction problems or whatnot. But I'm just saying is that see, um, um, I, I'm giving a side eye to these special courts. And I heard in I read today in Connecticut that they even built a prison just for veterans. Like, yeah. wow, wow.
1: You know what I'm saying? Like, there's going to be beds. The, yeah. But you know, we know why they do these things. 150 beds at $32,000 per head is $5 million a year. And it's not going to cost you $5 million a year to maintain that 150 men. So it may seem like only a few, but that's a fortune for prison and yeah, They make yeah. the most they can off of it.
0: But I'm just saying though, I don't think that veterans should get any special preferential treatment than anybody else. Alright? Well, so well, I mean, I know some people might disagree right. but with that. we're up that. to
1: 130 yeah. of these courts now. There's yeah. 130 of them nationwide now.
0: Yeah, everybody should be going through those courts, but I again I state that nobody should be arrested even arrested for a victimless nonviolent and it shouldn't even be a drug offense come on man we talking about we talking about grown adults engaged in adult behavior so if they was really off overseas fighting for our freedom and liberty then how come i don't have the freedom and liberty to grow a couple of plants in my backyard or grow this whole grow a couple of acres of <laughs> marijuana How come I don't have that right and that liberty? As long as I'm not giving it to kids, as long as I'm not—you know what I'm saying. As long as I'm uh, engaged with with, uh, consensual transactions between adults, Why, if I got so much freedom and liberty, what right do a stuffed soup have to tell me what I can and cannot grow on our property, what I can and cannot consume, You know what I'm saying? So let's kill all this stuff about we got so much freedom and liberty. How does that work out? You know, land of the free, but you got the most, you got the largest prison plantation population in the world. Let's stop with the political
1: correctness. Happy Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day, indeed. You know, my father, well, the man who raised me, my great uncle, was a World War II veteran. And uh, he's in bad state affairs right now after serving in World War II. It doesn't matter what war you're serving. You're going to get treated the same. I remember they were saying there was tens of thousands of veterans who were passing away simply because they couldn't get treatment in time. They were waiting for years and years. And that's true. uh, That's not an
0: exaggeration, man. That is not exaggeration. One of my cousins, man, he almost ended up as one of them incarcerated best. They did incarcerate him for a while in in Maryland, but we didn't give up. And and we just kept fighting for him. And I remember, man, my uncle came to me and said, "I need you to go with me to to Maryland." And I was like, "What's up? You like something going on with Tony up there?" And so, you know, I need you to help me, you know, get all this stuff out of his house and and and, and move it back down here and whatnot. So we went up there, man. They was trying to get Maryland got some of the strictest gun charge, even though he had a legally owned firearm. Somebody was threatening him. And he didn't point the gun at them, but he flashed it, you know. Uh, but it was a, a case of road rage, and and so man, they try. Look, the judge begged the jury to come. Conv- he was a captain in the air force. The judge begged the jury. The jury came back deadlocked on the charges, right? And 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 so he went, he was begging the jury. Uh, can't you just give me one conviction? I swear to God, man, I swear to God, I wish I had a video of it. They were begging. they were, He was begging the jury. And and they came out again. Well, we just can't come to no agreement on it. Go back in there and deliberate a little more. You know, just, just give me one conviction. You know what I'm saying? I was like getting angry. I was getting angry up in that piece. But he had he has he has a hereditary uh uh mental uh issue that uh came from his mama's side, cause they said her grandfather her father was like that. Like he like had all these little pieces of paper around the house where he didn't scribble notes and stuff, and he was very paranoid. You know what I'm saying? He installed like security system in his house. He was like, they watching me, they watching me. So he was having a men- man. And, and and so, man, do you do you know, man, that uh, it took like it took over a year, man, for him to even get uh, get a uh, seen at the VA hospital here in North Carolina. So you ain't exaggerating when you say it can take
1: years, man. Yeah, uh, it takes so long that people die, literally waiting, uh, die waiting. And, and, that's, and,
0: and that's again, fun. I just want to tell y'all. See, them judges, them politicians, they might be on Facebook. They might be on Twitter. They might be on your TV or at some event saying, thank the troops and we honor the best for their service and whatnot. And judge so-and-so is going to be here to serve the pancakes at the IHOP and all this and that. But that judge was in that courtroom begging the jury to convict this captain in the Air
1: Force. I bet you they don't treat the cops like that. Well, you, no. you mentioned earlier that there is a prison, or at least a uh, wing of a prison that's being built specifically to house prisoners. So now, I mean, uh, military men. So now they got their own courts, and they're about to get their own prison, starting with 150 men. Johanna, you want to uh, segue us into that story?
2: Man, I don't want to, but I have to because it's the news. It's the it's, truth. It's and that, need uh, to know. <laughs> right, like uh, like uh, Mama Reed said, maybe the people just don't know. So <laughs> I'm going to stick with that. They just don't know. November 9, 2015, this is Associated Press wire story. Hartford, Connecticut. <clears throat> Connecticut's Correction Department has set up a new unit in its prison system, which is devoted solely to inmates who are also military veterans. Happy Veterans Day. we got a new jail for you. The Veterans Service Unit, which includes 110 beds inside the Willard Sibulski Correction Institution, will be formally dedicated on Monday. God, it's just that's just so cold-blooded, man. They knew the day of Veterans Day was right now, and he gonna open the prison. Mm-hmm. That's just cold, you. man. Uh, f- uh, formally dedicated on Monday in a ceremony attended by Governor Governor Daniel uh, Daniel P. Malloy. It's part of a larger reintegration center at the prison designed to prepare inmates to reenter society. But in addition to the job training and the other programs, the slavery that corporate corporate entities are undertaking by putting these people to work for pennies a day, the veterans will get special help to deal with military-specific issues such as post-traumatic stress disorder. There also will be peer counseling from other vets who have been to prison and access to attorneys from the Connecticut Veterans Legal Clinic. The unit has a military theme. It's a damn theme park even. Complete with reveille in the morning. Wow. <laughs> man, let me just This you snuck this in on me Max. It's like the, <laughs> it's like the underground railroad. <laughs> I'm about to flip out. They play a reveille in the morning on them? Come on, yeah. man. Uh, what is uh, they act like they're in the military in prison. This, this is, is ridiculous. ridiculous. I mean, how sick do you have to be? Okay, a color guard and a code of conduct that includes keeping "quote unquote" squared away uniform at all times. It's like it's a it's like a dress up like a game or something they're playing. There are patriotic murals on the walls, and the official seals of the five branches of the armed services wow. are displayed. Prisoners will be rotated through military-themed crews. Each responsible for a different aspect of the unit's daily routine, the ritual crew, for example, leads a daily memorial and moment of silence in honor of soldiers who have recently died in the line of duty. These guys follow the rules and have a mutual respect for each other, which is why I think it works, says Michelle Roberts, a social social worker with the <laughs> that was a waste of an education <laughs> with the u s veterans. Administration who works with the inmates on reentry issues such as housing and health care. She's obviously a failure. If they got a, a unit dedicated to reentry and, and housing and health care, why do they got a unit for jail? They give them a house and a job. She was part of a tour of state officials uh, that took a similar unit in Pennsylvania. So they got another one in Pennsylvania when considering setting up the facility in this state in Connecticut. There are no fights. There's no disciplinary ticket," she said. "The unit is immaculate all the time. There's a schedule, there's a routine. There are mental health services. The veterans administration says there are currently more than 530 military veterans in Connecticut prisons. The unit is open to inmates in any branch of service, including the reserves and the National Guard, inmates wishing to become a part of the <laughs> wishing to become a part of the unit. Must fill out an application and meet certain criteria. Sex offenders and inmates deemed high security risks are not eligible. Keep it in your pants. Wow, man. Here yeah, in the comment section right behind it, is this a joke? <laughs> That's the first comment underneath. It, wow. it's a, yeah,
1: it is a joke on us. It's I mean, it's to make you us.
0: think, oh, we really take, we care about our veterans. We even built a special prison just for them. You know like, what I'm, I'm saying? saying? Wow. Man
2: understand man i'm leathered in the, i thought i I mean it's like this program and continuing to study the depravity that plays itself off in america is justice and freedom and, and law-abiding and all of this whatever it just it takes a new i promise you every week y'all know when y'all first extended the invitation i got opportunity to come on this program y'all had already been doing this and since i've been here I swear I thought every week before today that I saw something that was worse and this had to be the worst. And then I come back. And <laughs> <laughs> it's like
1: that always, dude. I, I've, I've, I've found that to be just the way things are. Uh, no matter how bad I think it is, it's going to get worse. And it is worse. And I just don't know it yet. But I'll find out.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And this is one of those things. And I bet you... It will be only a matter of time before they start moving this model to non-military units. This is how they act over there. The recidivism rate reduced by uh, 6%. So we're going to try this on civilian prisoners. And and then think about the press,
0: the so-called free press, that these veterans then fought for them to be able to, you know, tell the news without any government interference. And then they're helping the government cover it up. They could have wrote an article like I wrote today, exposing how many of these vets don't need to be in prison. That's in prison, but no. What did that What did that news article? You know, right? I think they let uh, uh released it like yesterday or the day before yesterday or was it today? It was I, like a press release. Yeah, uh, I think it was yesterday. Yeah, and, and so this is right timing for yep. Veterans Day. That's what you write about. How we done built this special prison that's just for vets. Like, we helping them. We really helping them by
1: putting them in slavery. We're not right? going to stop arresting you, but we're just going to put you in a more familiar prison so you can feel like you never left the military. Yeah, what you're going to be what, in there with some the other veterans.
0: Yeah, you're going to be in there with some other veterans. And, and man,
1: oh, man, it's going to be just like basic training. <laughs> man. well, there you have yes. it. And... Uh, As a matter of fact, that is the segue into the next uh, article, which is the one you wrote, Scotty Reed. Uh, Might as well just go ahead and take it and roll with it from here and uh, tie it all together. Okay, I'll just read the article. It's
0: not very long as I'm learning. uh, You know, just share the facts, man. Just share the facts. And these are the facts that I shared. And and again, this is a low estimate, and, and I'll explain it after I read it. It is estimated that 50% of all prisoners in U.S. prisons have been convicted on nonviolent drug offenses. Now, we've heard on this program, right, and this is me editorializing, it's not in the article, but we've heard of of statistics as high as 70% of of all prisoners are are nonviolent drug offenders. But this is what I wrote. I went with what I could document. Alright, so it's estimated that fifty percent of all prisoners in US prisons have been convicted on nonviolent drug offenses. If this holds true for the veteran population in prison, we estimate that at least five hundred thousand veterans are incarcerated over nonviolent drug offenses. So I went with the one the latest figure of one million. Uh, Veterans and and I, you know, just applied the 50 percent of all U.S. prisoners being convicted on nonviolence. So that's how I came up with the figure of 500,000 veterans incarcerated over nonviolent drug offenses. Now the average annual cost to incarcerate one inmate is thirty-one thousand three hundred and seven dollars, but this can vary widely from state to state. In New York, for instance, it costs between fifty thousand and sixty thousand, and some states is upwards of one hundred thousand. Now we're talking about adults. Uh, Max has often talked about how it's much, what in New York is what one hundred and sixty thousand for a
1: youth effect? No, it's Three hundred and fifty-three thousand dollars a year so one to incarcerate child. one teenager like Khalif Browder in New York State. Okay, so so
0: uh, these are uh, based on the adults. This ain't even bringing in the juvenile, so-called well, the juvenile injustice system. Now we're on the right. If we take the average cost of of incarcerating a prisoner and multiplying it by five hundred thousand, U.S. taxpayers are spending an estimated uh, 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 um, $15,653,500,000 per year to incarcerate veterans over nonviolent drug offenses. Now, last night during the GOP presidential debate, candidates were asked how they would cut the U.S. debt. Not a single candidate mentioned reducing the debt associated with the world's largest prison population. Not a single Democrat has discussed debt reduction related to prison incarceration in their debates. Presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders has introduced a bill in Congress to abolish private prisons and jails and industry whose lobbyists push for harsh criminal justice policies and certainly, if passed, would save taxpayers billions of dollars. Sanders also wants to end marijuana prohibition and has called for the removal of cannabis from the federal government's scheduled list of drugs. He has introduced a bill called the Ending Federal Prohibition on Marijuana Act of 2015. Many veterans use cannabis to treat their PTSD uh, so removing it from the scheduled list could go a long way in preventing veterans from being charged with possession and incarcerated. And I did link that they are now medically prescribing cannabis to PTSD sufferers. So I linked to that. Now, in contrast to what U.S. taxpayers spend on incarceration per inmate, the U.S. taxpayer only spends on average 6000 and eighty eight dollars per veteran for veteran benefits this is every this is per year, perhaps if the u s spent on average thirty one thousand three hundred and seven dollars on veteran benefits per veteran, it is plausible to believe many of the veterans would not be in prison. so on this veterans day, instead of co-signing on to a social media post by a politician. Thanking vets for serving, informed them on how many veterans return from numerous wars and end up serving a prison sentence because of failed U.S. drug war policies. Happy Veterans Day!
1: Mm. And you know, in states like, uh, as actually in the state of Connecticut, where we were talking about the 150 veterans getting their own prison. Connecticut taxpayers pay 50, 56% more than the national average. So where I said that would cost four, th- $4 million a year that they would be making, it's ex- closer to $8 million a year. Hmm. They are just raping us on every level yeah. you can imagine. And another yeah. thing about Connecticut is that blacks only make up 9% of the population, but they make up 43% of the prison population, and that includes veterans. Right. So I bet you this is new prison and he, this go, what's going on with the incarcerated veterans. If you were to do it by race, you would find out it would be overwhelmingly affecting people of color.
0: And in, in, in effect, what they're doing is like you mentioned earlier, I think I've read statistics like one in four veterans are homeless. So this is how they solve in the veterans homeless problem. We got, right. Yeah. This, this, is problem this is how they solve it.
2: This is how they solve the mental health problem, too.
0: Right, 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 by putting them in the prison plantation. So, you know, that's why I don't like to hear people talking about, thank you for your service. You fought f- to defend our free." I'm like, what freedom, man? This is the land of the incarcerated. This is the land of the slave. This ain't the land of the free.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mm hmm just making me think of the state motto for our state in review today, New Hampshire, which is live free or die. <laughs> oh my god, what a what a uh, just a hypocritical thing. Well, yeah, this is certainly not the land of the free. And you know, I'm in a love-hate relationship with the armed forces in the United States mainly because I love our veterans cuz they do give up their lives uh and their security to go and be a part of It's the poverty of, draft, uh, man. But you know, they, they think they 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 think that they're trying to make this country safer, but in the meantime they're not. And a the lot of them are destroying young people. This country, other countries they're destroying our own country.
0: You know, like I you know, I was talking to our abolitionist brother up there in uh Maryland, Christopher Irvin today, and he had made a post about veterans. I think Chris is veteran or either his dad was a veteran or something like that. But anyway, you know he he was like you know he was like i remember my time in paris island and he was in the marines that's right he was in the marines cuz he mentioned paris island uh which is in south carolina um and and so anyway I was like I was like you know I cited some of the things that you know I've talked about on the program thus far and I was like I don't understand why anybody would join the military today and so then he was like well you know Scotty you and I joined and 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 whatnot but I was like look man. My my dad, my uncle and my second cousin, they were drafted into Vietnam and they did not talk about it. One of my cousins, he won't talk about it. I tried to get him to talk about it. When I was thinking about joining the military, he would not talk to me about it. The only thing my dad would talk about is them sores that he gets in his head from that Agent Orange when he was in the jungles of Vietnam, you know. And And, and so I wasn't really fully informed about how... People in the military are actually being used as proxy tools of racism. You know what I'm saying? And, and I was like, you know, well, Chris was like, well, you know, I can't remember everything he said. And I was like, look, it's not like in 1987 when I joined, there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. There was no Internet. There was no new, uh, 24-7 news cycle. We didn't have access to the alternative media. All we got from is what was on television, from the corporate media. So I was not fully informed when I joined the military, but I make it my point. I told my daughters when they were talking about going in the Air Force or going in the Army, I was like, look, I don't want you going in the Army because they raping the hell out of females up in the Army. And they raping males, too. It ain't all what it's cracked up to be. Right. I understand why you want to go. But I was like, if you can find another way, don't go And If you feel like you must go, go to the Air Force because, you know, that's the least uh, oppressive than all the services. But again, I'm just tired of people painting this pretty picture about what about our veterans, about the armed services. and, And I'm just I'm no man. I can't lie. To myself, I ain't going to lie to my children, and I damn sure ain't going to lie to you. So,
1: mm-hmm. And, you know, we ain't never been known to be politically correct on this show. And that's mainly because we don't owe anybody a damn thing. We can speak our mind the way we want to speak our mind. There are no corporate investors, no puppet masters pulling the strings. These are three brothers pulling pulling their resources and their intellects together. To find out what the problem is and present a solution to the problem.
0: Definitely, this is listener-funded radio. Listener-funded, so yeah, y'all don't see no Walmart ads and and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> you might see some Google ads, but there ain't too much <laughs> revenue coming off of that. Uh, most of our operations is funded by the donors that donate to the Black Talk Media Project, the nonprofit. And you know that
1: is the bottom line. Really, we're looking for a solution. We think we found a good one that is tried and tested. It only had one weakness, which caused it to ultimately fail. And the weakness came from betrayal by Abraham Lincoln and the Congress, particularly the congressmen of South Carolina, in 1865 and 4 and 3, when the exception clause was placed into the 13th Amendment which allowed for slavery to come back not only as big as it was, but bigger within the next century, as we see here today. So that solution is abolition. There's a lot of people that have bled and fought and died for real freedom. Not for the right to vote, not for uh, something like democracy, but for freedom. From enslavement right. which is what we see today
0: exactly exactly not for social security not for health care not for any of those things and yeah they you know it's nice to have to provide for people who can't provide for themselves and and need help but ultimately we the American Revolutionary War was fight for freedom the Civil war was a fight for freedom and it may just take another civil war in order for us to to finally erase the scourge
1: of slavery off of this face of this continent.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, this is a great segue, uh, but we're going to take a commercial break first. When we come back, on the other side, Brother Johannan is going to give us the stats on the GEO group and CCA's quarterly earnings report. These are the people who know what's going to happen because they're signing the contracts and accepting the checks. So if you want to know what the future of prisons look like, listen to this program. We'll be right back after these messages.
0: Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real
2: talk, Black Talk
1: Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, uh, where we're giving you exclusive information straight from the enslavers' mouths, their plans and agenda, and how much money they've made, how much money they've been making. Since I've gotten on this program, one of the first things that Scotty introduced me to was these conference calls. And for years now, we've been keeping track as their profits have steadily increased, as they told us in advance where the prisons were going to go and how they were going to be built. Like the Wall Street Journal's report recently, uh, a couple years ago, about how they were building an immigrant facility in Louisiana to transfer 400 prisoners. And lo and behold, here it came. So you'll see laws come into place to enforce the predictions of these prison enslavers. You hear it here first, and then you hear the laws come out afterwards, uh, and the policies come out afterwards. So today we're going to hear what is the third quarter?
2: Yes, sir. Third quarter. Yep. Uh, uh, Corrections Corporation of America, uh, New York Stock Exchange symbol CXW uh, had its Q3 2015 earnings conference call on November 5th, 2015 at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And then its sister company, its uh, evil brother in arms, uh, the Geo Group. NYSE symbol GEO had its Q3 2015 earnings call also on November 5th, 2015 at 1 p.m. Eastern. So we got the lowdown on both of these just, uh, just over a week ago here, just under a week ago, what they're planning to do. They, they spoke first about, uh, what they've already done. So that's the, the, the first little part of the bragging and, um, I mean, it's just more of the same, man. They, these people ain't taking no hits. They, uh, they, they, they. I don't know. They, we do what we do, but then they figure out how to do what they do, and they keep rolling. Um, this is from Damon Heinegger, who's the president and CEO. He led off the call. I'll just read uh, uh, bits and pieces from the transcripts that I, I think the uh, the listening audience, you know, maybe has some concern about us as, as we disclose in our uh, earnings. This is CC, uh, CCA, Correction Corporation of America. Damon Heinegger, CEO. As we disclosed in our earnings announcement last evening, we generated a revenue of $460 million, which represents a 12.6% increase from the prior year, the same time period in the prior year, and normalized funds from operations of 0.64 cents per share, which is in line with our high end of our third quarter guidance that we provided back in August. Says, uh, moving next to recent facility developments, uh, developing projects as I indicated on our second quarter call back in August, we did go ahead and complete construction of our 1,500 bed Ote Mesa Detention Center near the end of the third quarter. However, for several reasons, the abolitionists have been in our ass. The transfer of offenders from the San Diego Correctional uh, Facility to the new facility was delayed until the third week of October. We, We went ahead and Made some moves behind the scenes and got our way anyway, so thank your local politicians for giving in to our demands and taking our money. While the temporary delay created a modest increase in transition-related expenses, we'll pass that on to the taxpayers, so don't worry about the shareholders. We know the additional 500-bed capacity at the new Ote Mesa facility will be an attractive long-term solution to our government partners who have historically expressed a need for additional bed capacity in the area when we show them the kind of profits they could be making if they just would go ahead and invest in our our modern-day slavery, long-term imprisonment of uh, innocent, and um, even if we can't convict them of something, nonviolent citizens.
1: They they even use the word attractive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's
2: an attractive long-term solution.
1: For them, attractive means you're going to make, Money. You're going to make plenty of money just throwing these blacks and browns in the prisons. Don't worry yes. about it. Money, money, money. Yeah, yeah.
2: It says a uh, construction of our 2,500-bed Truesdale-Turner Correctional Center in Tennessee, which this is a big deal for CCA because they're headquartered in Tennessee. And at some point, they uh they, they, they got too close to the fire. They had to back off in building uh, in their home state for a number of years. So this has been a big deal for them to be able to get back in to building prisons in their own home state. Um, they've built a 2,500-bed Truesdale-Turner Correctional Center. Uh, is going to be scheduled to be completed on time in, uh, and commence ramping operations and begin accepting offenders from the state of Tennessee in the first quarter of the year 2016. Bringing this facility online will help to alleviate overcrowding in the state-operated facilities and provide capacity for anticipated increases in population. Who do you? Th- who, where did? Where did they get this from? That they've got anticipated <laughs> increases in prison populations. Every statistic has said crime has been going down since the nineties. So wh- why do they keep thinking more people are gonna be going to prison? Hmm, I wonder. The project has remained on budget, and we currently expect to invest an additional five million, up to maybe ten million. In the fourth quarter of this year, it's complete construction on the facility. Upon activation, the facility is expected to ramp up populations to near full utilization within six months. We're going to pack the house. It ain't going to take no time.
1: That is an open threat to the community. Like, we don't get, don't worry, we come in, we're going to build it, and when we build it, it ain't going to be a matter of they will come, we'll come get
2: you. Yeah, yeah, I can guarantee you, Tennessee, so we got Tennessee, Chattanooga, uh i know memphis is a, is definitely a it's, hub for yeah you it's a, definitely a hub for for the black community in uh, memphis so you no doubt you'll see uh the oh you know hyper policing efforts over policing efforts and black folks getting thrown in jail like not, like never before in memphis just to support this because this is a major job creator uh cca is a major uh, revenue generator taxpayer i mean everything else for the state itself they don't what, what else does tennessee have they got slavery so that's what they're doing well, Tennessee
1: so also has an abolitionist movement. There's at least a dozen hard oh
2: yeah. abolitionists in Tennessee oh yeah. oh that yeah. I know personally. Mm-hmm. Next, I would like to provide an update on our recently announced acquisitions. In August, we announced the acquisition of, of a portfolio of four community corrections facilities amounting to 605 beds in the Philadelphia area for approximately $13 million. The transaction introduced a a strategic alternative to our traditional model of owning and operating residential reentry facilities by providing a real estate only solution that offers CCA an attractive lease agreement with a tenant. In this case, the community education centers. Mm. I wish we had visuals so you could show Chris Christie eating a donut. That has multiple long standing contracts with government partners for, to provide residential reentry services because that's who he lobbied for hardcore. That's who he made sure had business in his state, New Jersey, where he'd been the head hog, like boss hog, for a number of years now CEC. That's his boys. Just last week, we announced the acquisition of the Avalon Correctional Center uh, services, adding 11 residential reentry facilities representing 3,157 beds. With significant geographic and partnership overlap with our operations, Avalon has a 30-year track record of providing exceptional community corrections programming. And we believe the resources of CCA will serve to further enhance those operations. Following these transactions, CCA now owns or controls 17 residential reentry facilities containing nearly 4,400 beds. Those 6,000 people that was just released a week ago? CCA ready for. They're ready. To, ready to bring them in. One thing that they
1: had 650 new beds in Pennsylvania.
2: Yeah.
1: That's 27.5 million dollars a year, right there.
2: Yeah, that's why they paid 13.8 to get it.
1: <laughs> they pick states. They pick states. I'm seeing, that have a higher cost per incarceration. Of course. Uh, Pennsylvania has 32% higher incarceration rate, 42,000 versus 32,000 for the national average.
2: Hmm. Well, they got some new beds for them. Um, says uh, our recent acquisitions helped to provide CCA with a larger platform for offering these services in more regions of the co- of, uh, of the company. So he goes on to talk about that. Our decision to issue $250 million of seven years unsecured notes is 5% in September and uh, obtain a hundred million uh, term loan in October, freed up a substantial amount of uh, capacity on a revolving credit. So they got more money to spend on buying new stuff. Um, Let's see, he talked about uh the new Federal Bureau of Prisons, um uh car sixteen procurement. Uh I forget what they what they that car stands for. Maybe one of you guys can catch it while I'm reading this. But anyway, it has to do with the immigrants. It's uh, some kind of legal name they came up with that, that speaks to the immigration situation specifically. But whatever. Anyway, so procurement advertised for up to ten thousand eight hundred beds which is the renewal of existing contracts for a number of facilities operating in Texas. CCA is currently under contract for one of these facilities, our 1,400-bed Eden Detention Center, which has a contract running through April of 2017. We have idle capacity within the geographical locations requested in the RFP, the request uh, from the government for for capacity. Therefore, believe we are in a unique position to compete for this award. Because they got some space, right. so they feel like they're about to get the next – just like we talked about uh, last year when Obama released an additional $3.8 billion to the yep. immigration crisis. They're saying we're in a position to get the next – the next time we have a crisis and we need more beds, we're we ready to get them. We're going to get another billion for y'all, so invest with us. That's so they, all they say.
1: Crisis. They've said it clearly that yes. the population is going to go up. They're building facilities in specific areas where they expect the increase to occur, and they're in position to collect y'all, Negroes, when they start locking you up in mass.
2: They're in position to benefit from the next border crisis because those are not organic; those are those are media created. I mean, so they're just telling you when the next time CNN starts running stories about the border crisis. And there's really nothing to report on. They're just doing the same stuff they've been doing. But we'll get everybody whipped up in a frenzy. And then we'll be able to go to Congress and say we need more money because we need more capacity to to house more of these people. And then guess what? We already got beds. So we'll be first in line. He says we are going to be in a unique position to compete for this award. We expect this procurement to be highly competitive, and anticipate an announcement to come during the calendar year of 2017, with performance beginning in 2017. So, of course, it goes on and on. And I mean, that's just from Damon Heinecker. They got several executive officers who go ahead and speak, and brag, and predict, and tell you what's going to happen. Uh, and then, of course, at the end of their talk, their call, they speak with the investment houses, the major investment houses. Uh, Toby Summer from uh, Sun Trust. Uh, which is a huge uh, retirement and investment banking firm, a uh, SunTrust Bank, um, MacIerry Research, which is another one which gets into you know deep pockets into the uh, investments, and they ask them very you know pointed questions about where they're doing, where they're going, and all that, and they tell them straight up what facilities are going to generate what kind of money, what kind of position. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous. So what, what I'll put the this link up.
1: What look like?
2: Uh well right now they have not they take a little bit of a dip. I think uh CCA today was trading at about twenty six something, twenty six thirty I think a share. I can find an update on that. So they're down just a little bit. Um they got pumped up artificially because it was about to be the you know, the quarter close. So they got a little artificial pump up so they wouldn't close the quarter at a loss. But the but the reality setting back in, so they're going back down. It's, it's it's overinflated. They're not really as strong as they're being shown to be. And there's been several articles that have been talking about how now they uh, it's been reevaluated and they're actually um they're actually being looked at now as is not a good investment to make. Um, so that's gone from being strong you know buy 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 to don't buy. A couple of people are rating them actually to sell. Um, so it's the tide is turning but of course you see what their response is is a political response they're going to mm-hmm. go to the lawmakers and go and make sure that they are a, a buy value no no we're not going to let the organic things occur we're going to go in and stimulate the, the response that we want
0: I just want to say to the listeners just listen to the language that johani was just using like you know mm-hmm. the slave auction blocks man that's what mm-hmm. it sounds like there are
1: lot Inhumanely sterilized, right, Scotty?
0: It's sickening, man. It's just very, very sickening, and it, and this yeah. has been going on for for what over one hundred and fifty. Well, hell no. I mean, Wall Street. I mean, wasn't that one of the first uh, tra- slave yes. trading blocks in yes. the country? So Wall Street long been involved. So you know, uh, they had a little brief period where they got out of it, but I'm still willing to bet they somehow were still no, making money. They was money. in it.
2: They was in it because they was in. They was trading the the stocks, the values of the companies that was using the slave labor when it went from the plantations exactly, to the, to the exactly. mines and it's to the railroads and. But you know, I was thinking
0: st- about the period before private prisons made such a comeback.
2: Oh, OK. Yeah. Right. yeah,
0: But they probably like you said, though, they probably was invested in companies that had contracts to do this or do that. I I, I don't know. But still, though, centuries, centuries that these yeah. evil people on Wall Street have been involved in, in, in slave trading. And that's what it is, people. It's slave trading and human trafficking. And we need to start using the correct language and calling it what it is again. Stop being politically correct. It's not mass incarceration. It's slavery. It's not policing. It's slave catching. Okay, let's stop being politically correct. Then maybe we can wake up some people to what this evil really is.
1: I'd like to say that we uh, could take a little credit for the dip in the stock values for CCA and Geo Group with the multitude of divestment campaigns. That we've been in the center of going on here, uh, where they've lost hundreds of millions of dollars in investments. But we also know that uh, predictive policies from the prisons were, because of what's occurring with the outpour of empathy for prison and slavery, to move towards investing in in jails now, and they're buying new jails, they're building new facilities, which have even less. Uh, rules and regulations than the prisons do. Some of them have no standards at all. And we remember, I remember Raven Shakatai saying that if you invest into municipal jail bonds, you can get a return of up to 50% of your investment. <laughs> so that's where all the smart money is starting to move now, shifting from the prisons to the jails. Even California recently uh, voted to get a budget of $2.5 billion to start building new jails.
2: Well, so with CC, uh CCA we heard all their information. Geo Group is not far off from that. Their stock is um trading a little bit higher than uh, CCA, but the um the story is still the same. You know, they uh they, it's just a part of planning policy for the country itself. I mean, in the future is is in their hands. They're telling you what they want to do. Um Damon or uh, Damon Heinecker, George Zoli, Chairman Chief Executive Officer uh leads off his talk uh, during the third quarter and first part of the fourth quarter we accomplished we accomplished several important operational milestones with the activation of more than 4300 owned beds we also achieved a number uh new contra- a number of new contract wins first our 1940 bed company owned great plains correctional facility in Oklahoma We've completed the intake process under a new 10-year contract with the Federal Bureau of Prisons and are now operating under a fixed monthly payment. So Say there you go. Again, That's man, your government uh, paying sound, them
0: monthly. Don't sound like they're too worried about the Justice is Not for Sale no, Act.
2: No, not at all. 10-year plan with the state of Oklahoma through the Federal Bureau of Prisons. They're paying them monthly. They got a note,
0: see that's what His I'm conscience. saying, man. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, man. Not that I endorse Bernie Sanders or any politician for that matter, but I, I do look at legislation and see if it can alleviate some of the suffering pending revolution. Okay, and 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 I'm we're just not seeing enough of the masses pushing it, man. We ain't got the NAACP. Ringing the bell and telling people, hey, this is some great legislation. It'll at least get, you know, X amount of people out of slavery. We don't got the Urban League. We ain't got BET. We ain't got none of the black magazines. This ain't being talked about in the barbershop. You know, what they talking about, dang, man, did you see John Lewis? John Lewis was with Hillary Clinton, and, and Hillary Clinton was doing the nay-nay on TV. and 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 see, you know, you know man, this is... Uh, again i get angry man but i have to taper my anger because they just don't know
1: i've read articles on that and they know what i know that it was a doom bill from the beginning that it was only put out there for the rhetoric and no actual purpose they can't get behind something that they already know is going to fail well
0: I, I, i disagree i think if let's say they say there's what 300 million people in this country, I would say if just say 50 million, if 50 million people were on the phone and calling their senators and calling their representatives and, 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 and just demanding that this went through out there in the streets or whatnot, it would pass. It would pass. I get if what you're saying. just a
1: thousand did it, it would
0: pass. But we got to get a thousand. But I get what you're saying. That it could have been introduced with the expectation that it was gonna fail because I'll have to say Bernie Sanders has been very disappointing and i'm I'm I was like on his page today as I was writing this article uh'cause I wanted'cause I had seen he had paid for. Um, uh, Facebook ad f- to in private prisons and what not okay um, so I was going through his Facebook page to find it right and I'm going after video after interview after video after interview after this he's saying this and saying that and then I'm like dang where is the abolitionist stuff at why you ain't talking about that in these doggone he talked I just got through reading an email from him today uh, while we were doing the program, I got an email from his campaign and and he were talking about how they were not during the debates. The Republicans debate did not even mention that Veterans Day was coming up the very next day, and he was talking about veterans, but he was talking about veterans from the standpoint of health care. He didn't mention the fact that we got seven hundred thousand to a million vets and at least fifty percent of them are enslaved over nonviolent victimless crimes. And I bet you quite a number of them are in GEO group and CCA facilities. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm like you, Max. I'm not seeing the enthusiasm. I'm not seeing him taking every opportunity to be an abolitionist candidate.
1: Well, for one thing, there's no evidence to show that the veteran population is any more disproportionate or different than the general population. So if 70% are in for nonviolent drug-related crimes in the general population, then that's very likely what the number is in the military population as well. Right, right. So, you know, it's just about the same. And as far as this bill is concerned with him, like you said, He's not talking about it at all. None of his people are talking about it. And it's something so historic that it could make a huge impact. But I know why he's not talking about it, because this bill, if brought to light, would cost hundreds of millions of dollars for the Clintons personally. Mm -hmm. They have been in bed with private prisons since their inception. They made their wealth off of building up the privatization of prisons like CCA and GEO and issuing out these contracts and bids. That's where their money came from. That's why they're one of the 1%. They are true enslavers. They did this while using the office of the president.
0: Hey, and I was just looking at something, and this is just so disgusting, man. I got an email from, uh, on GEO. I got an email alert from the uh, Seeking Alpha and they're like saying short GEO. Why? The G.E. Gross future is behind bars. I mean, even using metaphors like that, man, you know what I'm saying? Like their future is going to be behind, you know, like they ain't going to be making that much profit in the future. It's going to be behind bars. You know, using metaphors like that, in the, in the, and this is a financial um, uh, publication, online publication and stuff, but Man, I ain't mean to interrupt you, but Max, I, I'm just, I'm with you, man. I was like trying to hold off. I was like maybe maybe trying to be codified or something man, and whatnot. But I mean, if I was running for president, man, I would, every opportunity I would be preaching. Abolitionism. I'll be telling. I'm the first. I'm the first politician since the 1800s to even be talking about slavery ab- abolition. And by the way, folks, it's not. It's not mass incarceration. It's
1: slavery. And the truth is, you would win it. Any candidate willing to take that stance would win. I mean, really, because people know. Wait, what's wait, going wait, on. wait,
2: Max. Wait, hold on. They would win if the popular vote actually put somebody in office.
1: Yeah, well there I is.
2: That. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to give But, but see they
0: they judge how they pick people based on the popular support and, and and how they think, you know, uh um you know what I'm saying it's like a compromise you know what I'm saying? It's like a compromise, but, you know, our, we look at the election, what was that, 2000, when Al Gore and whatnot and, and all them hanging chads in Florida and, and whatnot, they ain't seem too concerned the way they just threw them votes out in the Senate and whatnot. They ain't too too concerned about too many people getting upset and turning out in the streets. They, they Yeah, they'll
1: be mad, but they ain't going to do nothing. kind of reminds me of the company, I don't know if it was East India Company or what company it was, that actually built the slave ships uh, and made their fortune on building and outfitting these ships for a huge industry that was bringing millions of people back and forth across the uh, Atlantic in the transatlantic uh, slave trade. The prison systems are much like them. They were probably fighting for their lives and livelihood, too, when they started talking about abolishing the transatlantic slave trade. So these people who are making these huge ships built to carry hundreds of enslaved Africans were being faced with going out of business. So they had to find other ways. But they they remind me of the people who made these slave ships because, you know, there had to be a huge industry. Uh, there was so many people, so somebody was making those ships, and I bet you they were lobbying to keep slavery going, lobbying to get more so they could build more ships and make more money. I bet you they were doing everything that CCA and GO Group is doing right now.
2: Sounds about right. I mean, it makes perfect sense that they would be, man. It's, and that's the thing that about just slavery, which is of course one of the the, the lowest. You know, of the low and, and worst embodiments of evil itself. I mean, person to person interactions and evil, and, and just treating each other bad or what have you. It's represented in our time most thoroughly by, you know, what we call white supremacy, racism. These kind of things are the the themes overall. But this is what I always wonder: Why do people jump so fast and just act like everything just went away? Like this spirit of evil and this spirit of enslaving this spirit of 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 treating one another the way that just a hundred years ago was commonplace, why do you think that why do people just accept that that just evaporated into 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 nothingness and and Left the planet, and we just don't have to worry about that no more because we just got a new set of
0: problems. This is just different, yeah. This is new problems and whatnot, and yeah, no, I don't understand why people think it just
2: went away. But it's it's
0: slavery, though. But slavery ain't never been ended, it ain't never ended, and they think mass incarceration is something new. And it's not new. See, the trick of the new Jim Crow, it ain't the new Jim Crow. It's
2: the same old slavery. It's the
0: same old Jim.
1: Yep. Jim White supremacy. And we've shown that in numerous ways, particularly with the slave labor, how at 1866, the first federal prison was built here in South Carolina, how the black codes immediately went into process. and. Uh, convict leasing began and lasted all the way up to 1928 in Alabama and then was immediately uh, transferred over to uh, Unicor. Or, or first it went into chain gangs and then when people complained about that, they went to Unicor in 1934 which is still in existence today. A $900 million a year industry based on prison slave labor. And that's just the labor aspect of it. That's the part where it says ex- except for prisoners, duly convicted. Right. Which is what you, our veterans get to be. Hey, I appreciate uh, your research on these calls, Johanna. Thank you very much, brother, for keeping us informed oh, yeah. on that. So we know where to look next and what's going to happen next and what these people are saying. I remember, in I think it was 2012, when I was introduced to these first calls and Scotty and I listened, I almost wanted to cry because of the Sanitized language that was being used to dehumanize people and just speak of them in the way you would speak of uh, uh, i door shelf did y'all see
0: the article where they freaked out? Uh, because you, the GEO group is, is uh, headquartered in Boca Raton, Florida, and they share a building with the Social Security Administration down there in Florida. And so a whole bunch of protesters and retirees, and you know they got a lot of them in Florida, but they had stormed the uh, building to protest something about the Social Security. And the GEO group thought they was coming for them.
2: Right. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, I talked
0: about it on my program of uh, either earlier this week or something like that, but they thought they were coming for them. And I was like, man, we should be coming for them. They shouldn't have a moment's peace to enjoy the ill gotten gains that they have. George Zoli shouldn't be able to be in a public restaurant and enjoy a meal in peace. Somebody should be pouring ketchup on his head to represent the blood of Dale Rainey when all his meat was boiled off his skin in that fall of the jail. I mean, I mean, I'm like, man, I get visions of John Brown putting a broadsword to their back, man. I'm like, man, these—that's what I, how evil these people are. It's the they same the evil, demon. the same spirit, the same demon, demons.
2: Yeah. It is. There's no. I mean, it, yes, absolutely. There's no, uh, no doubt about it. It is the same evil. It ain't no new evil. It hasn't done anything new. It's doing the same old thing it ever did. So that's how you know it's the same what it was before. It's just
1: well, they, there you have it. The CCAGL quarterly reports. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio, where we are politically, decidedly incorrect. Here on this program, you get the truth, the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. We're going to take a couple quick messages and we'll be right back after this break.
2: This is Brother Elliot host of time for an awakening and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network new media for the new millennium
1: peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio where we're about to go into our next segment which is our weekly series uh, America is Ferguson This week, our spotlight is going to go on the state of New Hampshire. Now, in my study of New Hampshire, I must say that uh, I was, I got to give you the two sides. I was impressed by the low number of incarceration, the low number of their Department of Corrections budget. Uh, It is a place that does not incarcerate as many people as the rest of the states that we have examined. But, on the other hand, I was appalled at the rate of incarceration uh, differences between blacks and whites in the state of New Hampshire. You may not arrest a lot of people, but damn near everybody he arrests is black or Hispanic. Damn near every single one of them. Disproportionate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, disproportionately targeting victims, blacks yeah. and Hispanics. And I'm going to show you that and more tonight. So when we tell you that New Hampshire is Ferguson, and you're like, how the hell can New Hampshire be anything like Ferguson? Let me break it down for you. New Hampshire is Ferguson. The state motto is live free or die. People quick facts. Population as of 2014 is 1.3 million. Of that population, 94% of them are white. 1.5% are black. 0.3% 0.3% are Native Americans and 3.3% are Hispanics. So uh, Native Americans and Blacks represent the smallest proportion of the state of New Hampshire, being 3.3% and 1.5% respectively, with Hispanics coming up right after them at 3.3. Overwhelmingly all white. Business quick facts: As of 2007, there were 137,800 businesses. In New Hampshire, of those 137, 0.5% were black-owned. And when you look at that, that's also another telling number saying, look, we're only 1.5% of the population, but we own 0.5% of the businesses. So literally a third of our people are business owners. Further, American Indians and Alaska Natives-owned firms are 0.4%. And Hispanic-owned firms are 1%. So the black population actually doing better than the Hispanic when it comes to owning businesses. And as we've seen, the national trend is women-owned firms are 25.8% of New Hampshire's businesses. Now, Department of Corrections, Facts, and Figures. The DOC costs. They have an operating budget of a mere $96 million for fiscal year 2014. It's one of those things I said I was impressed by. Small state population 1.3 and they have uh, literally less than half the budget that Vermont has. 96 million annual. The jail system. New Hampshire has 10 counties. According to the latest jail census taking in 2006, there are 10 jail facilities and four adult prison institutions housing 3,018 inmates. There are no standards or jail inspection programs in the state. Let me repeat that because we've been seeing that across a lot of these states. There are no standards or jail inspection programs in the state. Basically, saying you could do whatever you want and get away with it. And nobody's checking. The prison system. As of December 31st, 2013, the New Hampshire prison population has 3,018 inmates. The New Hampshire Department of Corrections Department employs 893 active personnel who manage four facilities with a prison budget of approximately $96 million. The Community Corrections System. The Department of Corrections employs 70 officers in field service divisions who supervise approximately 15,000 267 probationers and parolees. That's a lot of probationers and parolees. Boy, you got some jobs being created there, don't you? The average annual cost of incarceration per inmate is $32,872, <clears throat> according to the Justice Policy Report. The cost of incarcerating one teenager for one year in New Hampshire is $214,620. Let me repeat that. Using these privacy facilities like CEC, which are championed by New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, according to the Justice Policy Report, the cost of incarcerating one teenager for one year in New Hampshire is $214,620. The crime rate in New Hampshire is about 21% lower than the national average. Property crimes account for 91% of the crime rate in New Hampshire, which is 19% lower than the national rate. The remaining 9% are violent crimes and are about 38% lower than the other states. New Hampshire, as of 2013, has a rate about 46% lower than the national average of incarcerated in prison adults per 100,000. They also have a rate about 74% lower than the national average number of probationers per 100,000 and they have a rate 20% lower than the national average number of parolees per 100,000. Taxpayers in New Hampshire paid about 6% higher than other states per inmate in 2012. That would be $34,080 versus the national average of 32,162. New Hampshire has one of the highest is one of the highest states with the highest black to white incarceration ratios in the nation. Based on the sentencing projects data of 2005, prison and jail incarceration rates, rate of incarceration per 100,000 population, whites are 289,000 per 100K, blacks are 2,666 per 100K, and Hispanics are 1,063 per 100K. That is a ratio of 9.2 to 1 in a state that is 95% white and only 1.4% black. It is nearly 4 to 1 for Hispanics who make up only 3.3%. Now, if that is not a disparaging rate, then what is? You've got this little small population of African Americans. A third of them own businesses in your total business uh, population, and yet They make up nine out of every, for every one of the people that are incarcerated in these prisons. Now, two things of note. One, after the state of New Hampshire hired a consulting group last year to help evaluate bid proposals for the construction, operation, and potential privatization of the state's entire prison system, it was determined that all of the bids had deficiencies from an operational standpoint, according to a report issued by New Hampshire's Department of Correction and Department of Administrative Services. By April of 2012, New Hampshire's officials had received bids from four companies to build and or operate a facility to house male prisoners and a hybrid prison that would hold both male and female offenders. The bidders included Corrections Corporation of America, GEO Group, Management and Training Corp., MTC, and the relatively unknown N.H. Hunt Justice Group, LLC, a partnership between LaSalle Corrections, Hunt Companies, and several other firms. To evaluate the details and voluminous Bid proposals. State officials organized three evaluation teams, made up of staff from the DOC and DAS. Additionally, in July 2012, the state paid an incredible $171,000 to hire an independent consultant, MGT of America Incorporated, to assist with review by evaluation, evaluating the operational and financial aspects of the vendors' responses. So they paid. This private company, $171,000, to evaluate these offers that were coming in for the state. Careful observers noted a glaring conflict of interest with respect to MGT. One of the MGT consultants evaluating the prison privatization bid proposals was George Vos, who previously served as Senior Vice President for Operations of Community Education Centers, CEC, Chris Christie's company. So the man working, being paid by the government to evaluate the bids coming in from the private prisons was previously the senior vice president of operations for the one of the prisons submitting bids. A private prison firm that runs 17 jails and 34 halfway houses. Both currently serves on CEC's board of directors. While he's evaluating, he also serves as one of their board of directors. Oh, my God. We're talking. Okay. In 2013, the House passed HB 443. The bill emerged with amended language that prohibited prisoners from being held in privately operated facilities, except. Oh, don't you love when they got an except? Except when the governor Upon recommendation of the Commissioner of the Department of Corrections, declares by executive order that a corrections emergency exists that requires the Commissioner to enter into a temporary contract with a private for profit entity. HB 443 failed to pass in the Senate on a 13 to 11 vote on May 2, 2013. Now, of note two, Durham, North New Hampshire. The state of New Hampshire experienced the largest increase in child poverty of any state in the country from 2011 to 2012. According to new research from the Carsey Institute at the University of New Hampshire, after having the lowest child poverty rate in the nation for more than a decade, New Hampshire no longer holds this distinction with a 2012 child poverty rate of 15.6%, an increase of 3.6 percentage points from 2011 when the child poverty rate was 12%. This represents a more than 30% increase in just one year and more than a 75% increase between 2007 and 2012. And guess who all the poor people are primarily? those people of color. New Hampshire is freaking Ferguson. From oh, the America man. is Ferguson series, November 11, 2015.
0: That was a stroke of genius you guys came up with to just show, you know, with all of the uh, focus on Ferguson. And then when we looked at the Justice Department report and they named the crimes, they named crime. They said federal statutes were violated. No prosecutions came out. But everything that they documented and y'all took that and, and applied it, to see where we could see it in each and every state but what we need though we need abolitionist attorneys so that what what, what I, I guys uh help me out here what were we gonna charge them with and sue them in court for under what law rico, rico. we're talking
1: about rico. rico federal racketeering charges yes yes
0: all over Continuous america conspiracy Mm-mm-mm.
1: And there's a number, you know, I, I usually have these links that I'll, I'll, I'll tie in with it so you can show you how all of these things are occurring. And I'll give you just a few of the headlines and then I'll share them on the new abolitionist page so everybody can see them. Uh, they have this uh, commissioner of police who was out there that just last year uh, called the president a nigger and refused to apologize for it. Says he don't like to watch him on TV because every time he turn on see another nigger. He don't care if it's the president or who it is. So that's from New Hampshire. Another story uh, from New Hampshire is they earned a D in policing for profit from the Institute for Justice. They are involved with forfeiture laws. They're one of those states where they get to keep 100% of civil forfeitures in their asset seizure programs. Uh, they are involved in policing for profit. Uh, one of the stories... Uh, That speaks to that is shame in New Hampshire and the racist attitudes, words from police. Uh, There is a massive judicial corruption going on in New Hampshire. So in the courts, the judges themselves have been shown to be corrupt and several have been convicted and incarcerated. They literally say that the state is known as the state of corruption and further information on the poverty resorts. Results that I spoke about will be available on the page as well. So all of these things are happening right now in New Hampshire, and that's why it could blow up just like Ferguson did at any time, because the oppression is just as bad, if not worse, in New Hampshire, who dare call themselves a free state. Where if you love freedom And you don't want government telling Mm -mm. you everything What to do or coming down on you for everything This is where you should move to But for the small population of black people And Hispanic people who live there That is certainly not the case Mm -mm -mm.
0: Uh, Again I want to Reiterate We do a lot of research And have been researching this for years I would even say that we are qualified To be policy experts But Um, I'm serious about the need to recruit and put together some kind of law firm, uh, you know, uh, where we go in and we sue these people, man, in the civil courts. Because you see, even when the Justice Department finds that these crooks are violating the law, they don't prosecute them. What the hell, man? What the hell is a re? Oh, what? Uh, you, You gave them a bad report card. That's basically all it is. Don't do it no more. You know? or 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 you have to implement these reforms, but the criminals ain't being punished, so where's the deterrent and so we have seen in the state of Colorado where this anti drug uh uh they're pro drug war they want people to keep getting locked up over drugs, they want to keep cannabis illegal, and they went after in a state where cannabis is legal, they went after a business under RICO laws. And, and, and instead of fighting a lawsuit, they, the business shut down. So we already know that you don't have to be at the Justice Department. You don't have to be a U.S. attorney. You don't have to be a prosecutor to go after them in the courts. And so we sitting around and we waiting on people at the Justice Department to come in and do something and they never do. At least they don't do
1: anything that's going to change the behavior. So, right there seems to be no kind of enforcement for cons- constitutional violations or even human rights violations. We just don't have anything set up, it appears, or any structure or system that fights against these things. The Justice Department makes recommendations. That's about the best we can get, it seems, when you have constitutional, rapid, widespread violations and human rights violations. We don't need you shaking a finger at somebody talking about y'all ought to slow down and then tell us, have the nerve to even make it come out of your mouth that you can't get involved with making local police departments uh, spend time on the minutia of keeping track of how many people they right, kill. Right,
2: <laughs> right, right. Even though she came back and tried to clean that up. We heard what she said. Man. Well, there it
1: is. Uh, New Hampshire's Ferguson, all done, wrapped up in a bow. You can have it. (laughs) Hmm. Well, we've got a few minutes, uh, and actually we've got about 15 minutes to finish our last two segments. I don't know if we have time for calls today. Uh, Our next segment coming up will be what we do every week, and I think I'm taking it upon myself to do it this week and switching (laughs) with you. I'm switching with you. The, the right. weight has been too much for you lately, man, and I want to give you a break. So let me pull it up here. We're going to talk about our uh, of our 21st century Underground Railroad rider. And pardon me for – can't seem to find the link there.
2: The uh, cop was the foreman and the grand jury here. I'll send it to you. I, I got it. I got
1: it. I just pulled it up. That's the long version because I know I had two of them. So uh, I was looking for the short version, which is here. Yeah, because
0: we, go. we got about 10 right. minutes, and I just want to let the listeners know the Lotus Place uh, radio program is coming on immediately following new abolitionist radio. They will be talking about the Missouri uh, black students uh, um, uh, demonstrating their
1: power. All right. Well, today, our uh, writer of the 21st century Underground Railroad is Albert Brown. Uh, Alfred Brown and his Texas conviction of 2005, where his charges were di- dismissed in 2015. Harris County, Texas prosecutors announced on June 8th, 2015, that they had dim- dismissed charges against Alfred Dwayne Brown, who had been sentenced to death in 2005 for the murders of a Houston police officer and a store clerk during a robbery. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals had overturned Brown's conviction last year because prosecutors withheld a phone record that supported Brown's alibi. Prosecutors in 2013 said that the phone record had been inadvertently misplaced. Brown had long maintained that he had been alone at his girlfriend's apartment at the time of the murder and that he had called her after seeing reports of the shooting on television. Defense lawyers argued that the time of the phone call established that Brown could not have been at the store when the murders occurred. There was no physical evidence against Brown, and a series of Pulitzer Prize-winning columns by Houston Chronicle writer Lisa Falkenberg disclosed irregularities in the grand jury process. The Browns' girlfriend had faced intimidating questioning and threats of perjury by a police officer who was the grand jury foreman. (laughs) Oh, my God. Let me repeat that. Browns' girlfriend had faced intimidating questioning and threats of perjury by a police officer who was the grand jury foreman and that she had been jailed for seven weeks until she changed her testimony to implicate Brown. Since 2007, Brown's attorneys have compiled strong evidence that the murder was committed by another man with a history of robbery and connection to the co-defendants in the crime. Despite a 2008 motion to test. The alternate suspect's DNA, such a test, has not been carried out. B. Uh, Rogers, DA, he says that DA drops charges against Alpha Brown, Houston Chronicle, June 8, 2015, L. Falkenberg. Evidence mounts that wrong man on death row for killing HPD officer, Houston Chronicle, December 20, 2014, L. Falconberg. Cop was foreman of grand jury and cop killing, Houston Chronicle, July 24, 2014, L. Falconberg. Mother of three pressured into changing story, but jailed anyway. Houston Chronicle, July 7, 2014. So salute to you, Brother Brown, for getting your freedom after 10 years of serving time in prison for a murder everyone knew you did not commit. But prosecutors railroaded you through it anyway Uh and sent your girlfriend to jail for Mm -hmm. seven weeks. In order to force her to testify against you. Wow, wow. So like I was saying, man, um the
0: other day on, on Facebook, you know, if you ever heard of that book which was turned into a movie Twelve Years of Slave, that book could be written by many people that's still alive today. So Brother Brown could probably come out with the book Ten Years of Slave. So again, people, this stuff ain't in the past, it's presently with us. We need abolitionists hey, Salute
1: Salute Well, This brings us to our, our, our final uh, Segment for the program Which is our Abolitionist in Profile Which will be uh, shared with you today By Brother Johanna and
2: <laughs> The Abolitionist in Profile this week Our Abolitionist in Profile this week Is Ebenezer D. Bassett Ebenezer D. Bassett was appointed U.S. minister resident to Haiti in 1869, making him the first African-American diplomat. For eight years, the educator, abolitionist, and black rights activist oversaw bilateral relations through bloody civil warfare and coup d'etat on the island of Hispaniola. Bassett served with distinction, courage, and integrity in one of the most crucial but difficult postings of his time. Born in Connecticut in October 16, 1833, Ebenezer D. Bassett was the second child of even Tobias and Susan Gregory. In a rarity during the mid-1800s, Bassett attended college, becoming the first black student to integrate the Connecticut Normal School in 1853. He then taught in New Haven, befriending the legendary abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Later, he became the principal of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania's Institute for Colored Youth. During the Civil War, Bassett became one of the city's leading voices into the cause behind that conflict, the liberation of four million black slaves, and helped to recruit African-American soldiers for the Union Army. In the nominating Bassett to become minister resident to Haiti, President Ulysses S. Grant made him one of the highest-ranking black members of the United States government. During his tenure, the American minister, minister resident also dealt with cases of citizen commercial claims, diplomatic immunity for his consular and commercial agents, hurricanes, fires, and numerous tropical diseases. The case that posted the greatest challenge to him, however, was Haitian political refugee General Pierre Boisrande Canal. The general was among the band of young leaders who had successfully ousted the former president, Sylvan Selnave, from power in 1869. By the time the subsequent Michael Domingue regime in the mid-1870s, Canal had retired to his home outside the capital. Domingue, the new Haitian president,
1: however, on,
2: brutally hunted down any perceived threats to his power, including Canal. General Canal came to Bassett and requested political asylum. A standoff resulted with Bassett's home surrounded by over a thousand of Dominguez soldiers. Finally, after five-month siege of his residence, Bassett negotiated Canal's safe passage and release for exile in Jamaica. Upon the end of Grant's administration in uh, 1877, Bassett submitted his resignation with As was customary with the change of hands in government, when he returned to the United States, he spent an additional 10 years as a consul general for Haiti in New York City, New York. Prior to his death on November 13, 1908, he returned to live in Philadelphia, where his daughter Charlotte also taught. At the ICY. Ebenezer D. Bassett was a role model not simply for his symbolic importance as the first African American diplomat. His concern for human rights, his heroism, and courage in the face of pressure from Haitians, as well as his own capital, place him in the annals of the greatest of American diplomats. New abolitionist radio salutes you, sir.
1: Salute. Salute. The first African American diplomat dealing with Haiti of all places.
2: Right, right. Wow.
1: There you have it, man. Well, we're about to wrap this baby up. We have covered all the bases here on this Veterans Day. We've showed you indisputable proof that veterans are being targeted just as much as anybody else, if not worse, and being exploited in ways that make it seem like they're taunting you. Like they really are just throwing it in your face. You know what? Serve your time, and then you can come serve your time. (laughs) You know, they're prisons just for you. They're giving people jobs to take care of you, they're making courts. Just for you, you are the commodity.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, this is our last uh, part of the program where we uh, have a few words to say to leave you with until the next time we talk. Uh, one of you brothers want to take us out tonight?
2: Peace uh, to the abolitionists, death to the oppressors.
1: Right. Um, <laughs>
0: I co sign on to what he just said, but um, I meant what I said earlier, people. Look, slavery is not going to abolish itself. We need new abolitionists in this new millennia. And, you know, it's just time out for any kind of excuses. It's just time out because, you, I mean, you're just a slave waiting to happen. All right. And and even if you ain't a slave waiting to happen, they're using your money to enslave people. Don't you pay taxes? Don't you pay taxes? Well, your tax money is going to these private prisons and slavery. So you are invested in slavery whether you want to or not. So to me, that don't that ain't representative of no republic or democracy that I want to be a part of. That's still practicing slavery. And again, the 13th Amendment, if you read it. And I, and I had the, uh tweet at one of them Missouri students uh, yesterday when he was talking about some slavery ended in 1865. And I said, young brother, you need to go read that 13th Amendment. Because it got a big old exception clause that said they can put your butt right into slavery as punishment for crime. So people, it's time to wake up and stand
1: up. Let's end slavery. I want to give a shout out to Kyle uh, Liddell Canty, who is right now in Canada seeking asylum, saying we were brought to America as slaves and the country hasn't changed its ways at all since then. And he says it's so dangerous to be a black American that he sought asylum in Canada. I hope they give it to you and on those grounds, because this is what we're doing Breaking ground so people can understand the severity and the reality of what we're facing. We're facing a New Hampshire where only 1.5, 3% of the population is black, but there are nine black people in prison for every one white person. That's what we're facing here. Institutional, widespread, systemic slavery and human trafficking. You have to remember, abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace.
2: From the tribes of Africa, inspired by the great black leaders. Dynamic, articulate, receptive, courageous, outspoken.